This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. B.B. King, right? How could you? Rory's all he can do. I don't even want to interrupt him. He's just so cool. Um, So it goes for the Lyft IPO. Bunch of uh, worries maybe among investors. Stock dipping below its IPO price. The stock which just began trading as a publicly held company on Friday gained nearly 9% in its first day of trading, well off its highs of the days. And today it's down about 10% below, as we mentioned, its IPO price. Eric Newcomer is charged with following the startup world for us here at Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Uh, This story, not surprisingly, is among our most read. Do we consider this kind of a broken? an IPO? Uh, I think it's too soon to say. You know, I, I, I used to cover. You're smiling. <laughs> used to covering <laughs> private companies, and it's you know, you know, now it's the public market. Stock goes up, stock goes down. Uh, but, but I do think you know you want you're building this narrative, especially in the first couple of days, that this is a stock that people should buy into and retail investors should get on board. And the idea that it's down from its peak, I think like twenty percent, or from opening day, it's down. 20%. I mean, that's pretty significant. And what accounts for it? I mean, as you talk to people, did folks kind of think about it over the weekend and say, maybe this isn't all yeah. that, that we thought it was? I spoke with an analyst who made what I think was a smart point that, you know, it's a story driven stock. Yes. And even the bulls will tell you you're buying into a narrative that. Lyft is going to transform transportation, and eventually self-driving cars might change the Lyft model and make it more profitable. And if you're a skeptic on sort of that high multiple story uh, behind Lyft, then you're going to be against the stock. And so there's going to be sort of a fight between sort of people who buy in and people who don't, and that's going to set the stock price. And if ifs and buts were candy nuts, we'd all have fun at Christmas. <laughs> so the point is, it's not a profitable company. No, it lost $911 million last and It's year. not like it was just created last year. It's been around for a few years. Right. And yeah. still not making money. Right. And, and not only is it not making money, there isn't an articulated path to profitability, right? There are levers they can pull, but it's not clear... There isn't like, oh, we'll just cut X, Y, and Z and we're going to be profitable. You know, there are costs that are endemic to how they do business. You know, insurance continues to grow. The amount of insurance, you know, they pay out continues to grow mm-hmm. as they grow. So it that's a problem. It makes it harder to just flip on profits. And they're banking on the U.S. market in comparison to Uber, right, which is global. Right. More in focus. Yeah. Lyft thinks of international markets. I think they would call it a call option, you know, it's sort of, they're in, a, they're in a nice position there that if there were sort of markets that they wanted to try and compete in, yeah. they have the technology and they could deploy in a market that Uber's making sort of too much profit in, but they don't have to blow the money sort of now. That's, that's sort of how they would articulate that. And as you say, this is a story-driven stock, and you make a really interesting point in your story today, which says, with a story-driven stock, it's kind of binary for you as an investor. Like, you either buy it or you don't, literally and figuratively. You either buy into the narrative or 
You're like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. It kind of feels like, you know, I used to go to Y Combinator's demo day a lot, and all those startups talk about the TAM, the total addressable market. Yeah. And in Lyft's IPO pitch, still, now as a public company, they're saying transportation is a trillion-dollar industry. So very much it feels like that startup sales pitch where, you know, we're going after this huge market. We're a revolutionary company. Get on board and don't miss, you know, the next game-changing company. And they may be right, but right. we just don't know. And yeah. they're not the only player in the field, right? And it is an increasingly yeah. crowded field. Yeah, I mean... To some extent. Yeah, it, in I terms mean, of the, options, there's competition in the U.S. And yeah, uh, and certainly in self-driving, there's a ton, right? So even if you believed that, okay, uh, there's going to be a self-driving future in a time that could be profitable for a company like Lyft, the question is, will they have the leverage or will the technology provider have it? If right. they're not the ones with... So there are a lot of ifs, even in this dream sort of story ifs case. for candy nuts. <laughs> a friend of mine from college used to say it. I have no idea. I'd never heard it before. And I'm like, right. all right. All right. Ifs and buts. Uh, but a lot of ifs and buts and a lot of worries for these unicorns that are sort of behind yeah. it, back in the stable, as it were, right. you know, wanting to, to get to the market. What do you hear from either those companies or their bankers or investors about what this may mean for their stories? Well, definitely on Friday when things were going well, it was like, this is good. This Everything shows the market. is awesome. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's good Except for us. Except it was you... up 23%, but by the day it was only up, not, by the it, close, yeah, by yeah, 9%. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. kind of halved, right. more than halved. Right. Um, I mean. It's gains. There, were, there was a lot of sort of positioning on how Friday went, and obviously being above the IPO price was good news, even if it was below the open. Anyway, yeah, yeah I mean, these other unicorns that are planning on listing, you know, Slack, Pinterest, eventually Airbnb. Uber? You, yeah, Uber, of course. Yeah. You know, they want this to go well, and Uber in particular yeah. because they want to be comped against Lyft wants it to go well. So nobody's happy uh, that the price is going down. Well, because they also – all of those companies and Lyft for that matter – have the other worry, which is, well, what if the IPO market overall softens a little bit? What if the global economy softens a little bit? What if the U.S. economy and the stock market yeah. and everything takes a leg right. down and this window starts to close? They don't need another reason to be right. There's almost a suspicious level of enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, it's like, why do all these unicorns want to go now? What do they understand right. about the market like, that the up. rest of us? <laughs> they want to get, get paid. You know what I mean? So the idea that lift would take a hit at all has got to be worrying when you're you've waited so long to go public your investors your employees want you to go public and so it felt like a window and you want it to be one which is what mike regan writes about in the magazine it's a, it's a good story I, i'm just gonna say i'm looking forward to may 15th which is when lift reports its earnings because right. i think you know what you're not a private company you're not a little uh, unicorn startup you're now a publicly held company you got to answer to investors right. so that'll be a you're taunting a unicorn <laughs> Doesn't become you. <laughs> Sorry. All Eric right. Newcomer is startup reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. As we mentioned, uh, Lyft shares are down. They are down 10.5% at $70.19 a share. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. We are Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, welcome to New York if you can afford it. <laughs> welcome to New York. Please get out your checkbook. Exactly. Uh, Lauren Berry is here with us. She is managing editor and deputy New York City bureau chief joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. One of the most read stories, as we mentioned, congestion fee, mansion tax, they're all part of New York State's new budget of keen interest. 
Lauren Berry. So what do we make of this? So we're looking at a $175 billion budget, which was passed today in New York State. And like you said, the two big points are congestion pricing and the mansion tax. So the first one, congestion pricing, is going to be a tax on all private drivers below 60th Street in Manhattan. And now we don't know how much it will be or which drivers it will exactly affect, but we're talking about likely over $10 per car and over $25 per truck to drive in that area of Manhattan. The reason behind this is really to try and shore up more money for the MTA. So it's a trade-off for people who live in New York City, right? Do you want a better MTA system? Right. Or do you want to pay more to drive? Right. But there's so many like questions, right? As yeah. you mentioned, the to some extent, really, the total fee, who's mm-hmm. going to be exempt? What about those of us who live in New Jersey and we're coming in? Like, There's yeah. so many questions still to be answered. And I think, too, people from New Jersey, even Senator Menendez said in a tweet this morning that this is double tax for people who commute to the city who don't live in New York State. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah, and it's something that's been talked about for a long time. It's something that's been implemented in London pretty mm-hmm. successfully. Right. It's something Other a lot of people pointed to. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this show and Bloomberg Live talking about the MTA, what has to happen with the subways. My husband and I were having like this debate. It's like, why should people who are in, driving in cars have to pay for the- <laughs> the mass right. transit, like, really, why, yeah. or why shouldn't maybe mass transit, forgive me, maybe pay more? I don't know. There's, there's a lot of well, but there are a lot of issues that this. part of it is you want to disincentivize people for from to driving, drive. and right. if the public transportation is ultimately better and a better alternative, that would change the nature of how we move around the city, right? I know that Cuomo said earlier this year that it would be a 30% increase on transit fares if we didn't do something like the congestion tax. Hey, you know what? If you clean it up, make them run on time, and I would be all in I'd on that. Because right? I got to tell you, Jason knows I come in, I'm like, oh my God, like I had to wait for five trains, and it's crazy. As someone who lives in New York City, when the subway works, it's great. Right. But when it's not running, it really does affect your day. So let's talk about this uh, this mansion tax because this was really brought to the fore in part because of something that it sounds like is not happening, which mm-hmm. is this pied-à-terre tax, which folks were – some people at least like the name were, of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the Pierre de Terre tax or the mansion tax or both. Pierre de Terre, it's a great word. But so the difference here was that the Pierre de Terre was going to be an annual tax. And that's a really big win for real estate developers to not have an ongoing tax for new buyers. But the mansion tax is going to be an increase in the current tax you have to pay for homes over $2 million. And it can go up to a 4.15% for apartments sold for $25 million or more. So we are not talking about cheap apartments here. No. Um, And we are looking at, again, that money going towards funding bonds for mass transit. So if you live in the city, these are things to be thinking about. Um, The Pied-a-Terre tax was an interesting one because it was taxing people who essentially were not full-time residents. Right, right, right. And we really need to look at what that would have been like. Is it fair to ask somebody who doesn't live here to pay for my residential subway system? It's a trade-off. Yeah, well, really, but I, if you want to, you know, if you want to be a property owner in New York City, like I, I see the logic behind this. Right. 
to help support the existing infrastructure. Right. So, I mean, you know what this really, I feel like, um, speaks to a much larger conversation about infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We know something has to be done nationally, and we're certainly seeing it here in the city, and we've got to figure out how to pay it because we need the improvements. Absolutely. If we're not getting a federal plan to kind of help jumpstart this, we've got to figure out other ways. The other part, too, is, like I said, these are very expensive apartments, and mm-hmm. so it kind of goes back to the idea, again, of taxing the rich. Um Mayor de Blasio had said that he had wanted to see more of a tax on the rich instead of a congestion tax. Um, So maybe this is kind of a trade-off here. We're still talking about very expensive apartments, and the money is still going to a service that all New Yorkers use on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. Plastic bags. That's the other big uh, piece of that band. And we have seen a lot of, again, New York we see as a leader. New York City we see as a leader Mm -hmm. in so many Mm -hmm. uh, different ways. In this case, they're kind of catching up. We're sort of catching up to a lot of the rest of the world. I mean, in terms of either charging or banning them altogether, right? I think, too, you can say, though, we're the second state after California to fully ban it. In Hawaii, it's banned because all the counties have banned them. But this will be the second statewide ban of plastic bags. And I thought what was really interesting about this one was that Cuomo said this was something that he really cared about. Yeah, He was not going to pass a budget that didn't have some kind of measure to lower the number of plastic bags being used. And it's estimated 71,000 tons of plastic bags are used annually in just New York City. So not even the rest of the state. Well, and as he points out, and we've all seen this, and I know you've seen it as a mm-hmm. boater, you yeah. get it way out uh, into the ocean. You're like, oh my God, look at all these plastic bags that are out here. It's it a, really is something. And it's like a small thing, right? Yeah. You stop this, but it can have a huge impact. So I think it's it's really tremendous. You know who has a huge impact? Lauren Baring, yes, Managing Editor and Deputy New York City Bureau Chief. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk about these most read stories. Oh, baby. God, taking us back. <laughs> Britney Spears. Britney Spears, man. <laughs> Early Britney. Early Britney is, yes, indeed. Before right. it got weird. We're not going to go there. Uh, fun story this week in the magazine from our economics editor, Peter Coy. And it all has to do with, uh, man, why can't uh, economists uh, get it right when it comes to forecasting recessions? He asked that question in a story in the magazine. It's also on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Peter joining us in our Bloomberg Director Broker Studio. Of course, he's our economics editor at the magazine. Nice to have you here. Thank you. I wrote it with Simon Kennedy, actually Mm -hmm. was the lead writer on the story. Uh, And that is a a great question. A lot of people want to know why, uh, if if we can predict the weather, why can't we predict the economy? And I haven't answered. We have gotten better. And I think, you know, you have to acknowledge that. You know, you can get a pretty decent forecast for seven, even almost ten days ahead. I get radar on my phone. The difference is that uh, I'd like to say that your air molecules and water molecules don't watch the meteorologist on the evening news. They don't respond to what the forecast is saying and change their behavior, but people do. People uh, react to what the experts are saying, what each other are doing, and you get these weird circular effects and feedback mechanisms that just make it so, so hard to figure out what's going to happen. And so what? tell us more about that because they keep trying, you know, maybe yeah, yeah. nobly. Um, and what will make it easier ultimately or is this always going to be hard? It's, I think it's always going to be hard. It's a complex system that's inherently um, 
inherently complex feedback effects. It would help if we had better data. Mm-hmm. And, I, and uh, I think that we're moving that direction with uh, sort of the new era of mass data sources like Google and Amazon and uh, Netflix and so on are all throwing off enormous amounts of data. Some of it is kept close to the vest by the companies themselves. But sometimes they'll be willing to, you know, mask it to protect your customers' uh, privacy and maybe their own profit motive, but provide enough that you can get more hints about what from minute to minute or hour to hour what consumers and businesses are doing versus having to wait for weeks later until, like, you know, the first quarter GDP report comes out. Right, everything's always so backward-looking. Like, you do wonder about, with all this data that we're getting from more and more sources, whether it can be more predictive in terms of what comes next for the economy. Yeah. So the the story we wrote, uh, Simon Kennedy found a great report from Fathom Consulting in London where they looked at the IMF, which, of course, is one of the premier you know sources of economic data and projections, and found that uh, out of like 389 or something recessions... 469, were, I think? 469, that's right, yeah. So that it occurred, right, Sorry. since... Just keeping you accurate, Mr. Economist. Thank you. <laughs> since, well, you know, they don't always get it right. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that. Since the beginning of, since 1988, the uh, IMF economists actually predicted only four of them, and all for tiny little countries in Nauru, uh, in the spring of the year preceding the year of the projection. And let's not forget, I mean, you and I got had the luxury of talking about this uh, last week because, of course, this uh, shameless plug was in our weekend Business Week program on radio and TV. But um, we all missed the Great Recession. Yeah. Or most people right. missed the Great Recession. Um, right? Yeah, and those who got it right, you know, stop clocks right twice a day, too. <laughs> so if you're, but actually, you know, that's a serious point. So there are two I mean, kinds that was a huge one. Yeah. There, there are two kinds of mistakes you can make. One is the false positive where you predict a recession that never happens. Those are the false negative where you fail to predict one that does happen. And, and the, the, the great, missing the Great Recession was a classic problem of false negatives. Uh, and, you know, as Simon and I write, uh, part of it is you don't want to go too far away from the herd. So if nobody else is predicting a recession and you don't predict one, then you don't really look particularly stupid. You look just as stupid as everybody else. <laughs> the, the wonderful group think yep. is what you write about. I also, you know, what's interesting too, Jason, they talk about lack of incentives for e-commerce, yeah. right? I mean, if you get it wrong, it's not like for the most part you don't lose your job or anything, right? Right. Um, you know, people who actually manage money might have more of an yes. incentive to get things right. <laughs> All right. So what are people predicting now? Not that it means anything. Yeah, just not that it, why are we even <laughs> asking this question? Uh, I think... Because we are in a really interesting time, and yeah. we've talked with you about this a lot, I feel like, over the last six months, about where we are, you know, these new things coming to the fore right. in terms of economic theories. I do want to... After you answer this question, I want to ask you about MMT, because yeah. I feel like you... You brought that to our attention months ago. You guys have written a lot, uh, had a lot on the air about the uh, yield curve inverting, although it seems to have uninverted in the last uh, couple of days. Today we're not worried about it. (laughs) That's old news. But, you know, the idea is that short-term interest rates being higher than long-term interest rates is a reliable recession indicator, but not with a very predictable uh, timing. So, yeah, it could be be the recession in the next couple of years, but... That's too long ahead to you know position yourself for it now. Um, 
The National Association for Business Economics uh, does a survey of economists. These are professionals. These are not so much academic economists, but more like working corporate economists mostly. And uh, something like uh, three-quarters are predicting a recession sometime before the end of 2021, if you add up predictions for 1920 and 21, which is a pretty high number. But just in this year, where you actually have a little more visibility, it's still you know only a small fraction, like twenty percent. So, so I do, like as Jason mentioned. So here we are at this funny little time. We're trying to figure out: does the Fed have it right? Because all of a sudden they got really dovish. Did the inverted yield curve have it right? Equity markets are higher. We just got some Chinese economic news, which we often are suspect about. But yet today we're like, yeah, all in. China doing okay. So <laughs> economy, like who are we? don't we? necessarily believe the numbers until we believe the numbers <laughs> because we would really like for them to be true. Exactly, right? right? Exactly. So I guess, you know, for economists, um, it isn't easy. Is it, gonna, is it getting any better? I mean, I think in the, in the story you said, why not just play it, say, predictions 18 to 24 months in the future? First of all, who's going to remember? Right. <laughs> Counting on that. You know, the old line is that you can, you can uh, give people a number, you can give people a date, but never give them both in the same sentence. <laughs> and that tends to work pretty well. But is it getting better? I, I, it's not getting better the way meteorology is getting better, put it yeah. that way. Right. Uh, you know, we're trying. Well, as long we, as you I, have we, behavior, right? Yeah. People reacting to things. Yeah. Well, we can predict a thunderstorm, but we can't predict when the economy is going to go into a downturn. That's cool. But we know you'll keep working on it, Peter Coy. <laughs> cool. You and all your economists. I'm not an economist, buddy. so uh, don't blame me. Yeah. We'll blame right. you anyway. But you we love right. talking to you. Peter Thank Coy you. is economics editor. The piece, it's really a nice read. Economics are mm-hmm. actually terrible at forecasting recessions. Uh, Simon Kennedy and Peter Coy collaborated on this one. It's in the current issue of Bloomberg Magazine, Bloomberg Business Week Magazine, I should say, and online at Bloomberg.com and, all, of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Games people play. All right, so definitely one of my favorite uh, stories in the magazine that's currently on newsstand. It's about video games because we talk about it a lot yes. on this program, Carol. Uh, Matt Kinterman often with us talking about the hit makers, you know, the Activision. You just like to say Fortnite. I do. Fortnite, Fortnite, Fortnite. <laughs> Orange Theory, all that. Not Orange Theory. Orange Justice. That's I'm not the impressed. I'm Orange not Theory impressed. is the workout. Anyway, it's a $180 billion industry. I know. So let's dig into it in a slightly different way. Garrett DeVink, he's got the story. Sony and Nintendo really have to worry about Microsoft, which is a, wait, what? He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as is Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. So Garrett, I want to start with you. Uh, A little bit of a surprise here that Microsoft is preeminent in their minds, especially because Apple, with some amount of fanfare, really got more deeply into the video game business last week. Yeah, so what the story is, is it jumps in in this point in time right now because we have a technological change in gaming. You could even call it a paradigm shift where hardcore gamers, people who who spend a lot of money on games, they've always had to have really good hardware. They've had to have a PC that might cost them thousands of dollars or a PS4 or Xbox for a few hundred sitting in front of their TV. But we're now at the point, almost at the point, where the technology is there where you can stream games that you're playing live just like you can stream TV and film on Netflix. And so companies like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, which have the internet infrastructure to do that, are suddenly 
in a position to kind of run away with the gaming industry. All right, no pun intended, pun intended. Game changer, right, Joel? Yeah, and I I kind of love this story, so thank you, Garrett, because to me, like, we, one of the things that we try and do with Business, Business Week stories is kind of look at it through a strategy lens. And I don't think that there's this kind of shift in that many industries where this hardware console that Americans especially have basically put in their living room and sort of just without even thinking been willing to spend two fifty four hundred dollars to put a Nintendo or you know back in the day Atari or an Xbox in their living room and that strategy had really worked for a really long time and Nintendo could just update its system and its console and then all of a sudden now it's like maybe you don't even need that console so what makes it such a paradigm shift and what what do the Googles and Apples see, Garrett, that, that maybe the Nintendos are a little behind on? Yeah, I mean, well, those companies have spent years building undersea cables to, you know, trans- help the internet go from one country to another. They've got data centers all over the place and they were not building those things for gaming, but it turns out they're actually very useful for, for gaming, you know, which is a very intensive kind of, it takes a lot of computing power to, to do it. And so Nintendo and Sony, which have been kind of the leaders in gaming up to now, you know, they're not those kinds of businesses. And that's where Microsoft comes in because they have been in gaming with the Xbox. They have very good relationships with games developers. They've even bought some games themselves, most notably um, Minecraft. And they also have the internet infrastructure. So it's like what they've done in terms of embracing the cloud right, they can maybe mimic in terms of embracing the gaming industry because they've got a lot of the core there already. Mm -hmm. So you have the infrastructure, you need the content, right? So what's the gaming community saying so far about what they see from the Google and Apple as they try and break this? uh, this Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the big, you know, gaping hole in the middle of of this strategy that, that Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft are kind of putting forward, which is, the content, right? And, you know, it's it's a total cliche of the last, you know, decade already, but content is king when it comes to gaming as well when you talk to people in the industry. And so just like HBO didn't go away because people figured out how to stream content over the internet, right. the big gaming producers, Electronic Arts, Take-Two Interactive, they're in a position of power here because they have the, the, the games that people have been willing to spend, you know, quite a lot of money on. When um, you know Red Dead Redemption Two came out, that was a, it, it made seven hundred million dollars in its first weekend. So that's more than the last Avengers movie. Right. So this is they're in this position to kind of pick and choose who they work with. They have not chosen to work with any of the tech giants yet. And yet, requisite Fortnite reference: Fortnite's free. That's not you know where it's all the extra stuff, right? Right. That they it's make a, money it's on. the skins and whatnot uh, that people are buying. So. How much does that, how dramatically or how broadly does that change the business model for the video game industry? Yeah, or is I mean, that sort of just a, a slice? The business model change that, that is notable here would be a move to subscriptions, right? Yeah. Where you maybe pay 10 or 15 or 20 or $30 a month, get, an ac- get access to a library of games. We're not sure what Google's model is going to be, it's, although it's probably going to be along those lines. Apple has said that is their model. And they've announced 100 exclusive games. But again, those games are they're from smaller developers, some quite well-known, but nothing that is sort of the Fortnite of the world or Red Dead or Call of Duty, that kind of thing. Garrett, what do you play when you go home? 
I'm actually not a huge gamer. I mean, I, 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 I did grow up in, in sort of the 90s and 2000s as, you know, a, a teenage male in North America. So I did play a ton of games growing up, but I kind of left it behind. And that's why this honestly was an interesting story for me because I haven't been closely tracking the developments yeah. in the industry. Yeah. And, and I said, like, like you, oh, this is a big deal. And it, may, it might actually pull me back into gaming if I can do it with my, you know, crappy six-year-old MacBook. What do right. you think Jason plays? <laughs> Definitely Fortnite, obviously. Are you Fortnite. a Fortnite guy? <laughs> no. Oh, he's so How does not. I don't play. I don't play anything. Uh, but I am totally fascinated by it. He's and been studying up on the lingo. Though. I do. I do. T- well, you know, Matt Kentman, who we mentioned uh, we earlier, is like our tutor uh, on this stuff. Do you play? I, no, but I, the reason that I'm particularly interested in it, and it is literally the, just the numbers. Yeah, like it it's is huge. just run well, away. Exactly what he know, said. Seven hundred million. It's bigger than the Avengers, yeah, right? So of course, like a Google is going to look for like how do we crack this? Or an yeah. Apple, right? Like let's get some money. Joel right. Weber, editor of Business Week, Garrett Devink, tech reporter. Thank you both. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, and our next guest says value is still dead, expects it to remain so. Tony Roth is Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust. He joins us on the phone from Philadelphia. Tony, good to have you here with Jason and myself. It was so funny. We were just talking with uh, our Dave Wilson, uh, who was citing uh, one uh, market watcher talking about uh, going in or going all in on growth. Uh, It's still about the growth stocks, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's about growth and it's about quality. I think those two areas, um, we're not at a stage in the cycle where value typically does well. Value typically does well once the, 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 the big drawdown occurs and you hit the bottom and you're coming out of the trough after the recession has already hit is when value tends to really perform well. So we're not even close to a, a period where value is going to do well. Not even close, which I feel like toward the end of last year, certainly Christmas Eve, people would have thought, well, we're we're getting really close to that, and now <laughs> yeah. we seem much further away. So, where are we as it relates to a time where value comes back? Which, I, what I'm really asking is, is this going to end anytime soon? Yeah, and I think the answer, the short answer, is we don't think so. So, yeah. taking a step back from the market and thinking about the economy, there are two fundamental factors that are really vital. One is the labor the labor market, and the other is inflation. So, looking at the labor market, notwithstanding the fact that we had um, a, a little bit of a weird or an outlier labor report for, for the, the month of, I can't say last month now, because that would be March, but for the month of February, we're going to get the March report, of course, at the end of this week. But taking back to the last report we got about three and a half weeks ago, it was a really bad labor report. Um, but notwithstanding that particular data point, the labor market's been churning out jobs, and it's been churning out strong wage growth, and it's doing all that without inflation. And those are perfect conditions for the economy to continue to expand. There's no reason to expect this expansion to end. Maybe if we have a a failure of the resolution with the trying to trade talks, there'd be enough concern from a confidence standpoint that you'd see a real continued freeze up in capital expenditures, uh, things of that nature. Um, Or maybe if you had um, a Democratic front runner that was a – 
moderate that can really compete against Trump, that would really set the markets back. But absent either of those risks, that these are perfect economic conditions to see an expansion continue. It's so interesting you make that point about politics because you know you see the headlines over the weekend about Joe Biden, uh, mm-hmm. you know who is the presumptive front runner, even though he's not in the race yet. And you do wonder if that moderate voice goes out, do re-election chances really improve for Trump, post-Mueller report especially? And does the market essentially say, yeah, we kind of like where this is this economy is going. We certainly, certainly like where this market is going. So more of the same is cool with us. Well, that's really the untold story, I think, in the market today. Everybody's focused on positive manufacturing news from China and the United States today. Um, and that notwithstanding a fairly soft retail sales number, which is what it had spooked the market two months ago, if you recall. But notwithstanding all of that, the market's doing really well today. And the, the, one of the reasons which people aren't talking about is that um, some of the news around Biden, and if you look at the betting polls on the website now, of course, it's a long way away. A lot of things can change. But the chance of Biden getting the nomination went from 30 percent to 15 percent in the last 24 hours. And if Biden was not only the presumptive front runner, but probably the Democratic, the Democratic candidate, given what we know today, that was capable, if not likely, of beating Trump, that's a real shift in how the market perceives the durability of the fiscal and regulatory program that has benefited the market over the last few years. But a lot can happen between now and then. I, I would hate to, <laughs> yeah, as we know, right. our recent political cycles have really But it is such really an interesting us, point, yeah. though, that the markets seem to be reacting to those sorts of things, even this, uh, even this far out. Right. Well, exactly. it's a big – listen, I remember before the 2008 election, around nine months beforehand, there was a Time magazine issue um, with Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton on the cover. Um, those were going to be the two candidates. And, of course, we ended up with John McCain and, and uh, Barack Obama. Obama. Wow. So a lot can happen. Right. But, but you can't understate the importance of whether or what? not Trump maintains the White House for the markets, because if he doesn't, then you have a big drawdown in, in financial asset values. For and this sure. is a sentiment market right now, it feels like, right? Well, I think that it's, it's – remember the, the old term, Tina, there is no alternative. Yeah. And I think it's a market that um, we've given back 50% of the multiple compression that we saw last year in terms of multiple expansion this year. And that's because it's not a great economic market, but – it's not a great economy, but it's an expanding economy, and there's no reason for that expansion to end. And in that kind of environment, and notwithstanding what we've seen with interest rates in the last um, few week or so, where the bond market got way overbought, um, rates are likely to drift upwards over the course of the year. And so where else are people going to put their money in an expanding economy than in an equity market that has relatively attractive valuations? And Tony, you don't think that will be problematic to the equity trade, um, you know, we underestimate, I think, in your words, you know, some of the optimism we might see in terms of growth and if we get a U.S.-China trade deal done. But then I do wonder what it will mean for the Fed if we get kind of a bit of an about face from being on hold or even talk of cutting rates that maybe that talk will change. And I do wonder if higher rates, once again, might scare the equity investor. Well, I think you're making a great point because the Fed – frankly, is all over the place. Um, and it was very frustrating to see the Fed come out um, a couple of weeks ago and say that we're done for the year. I mean, they didn't say it in those words, but that's essentially the message they were trying to send. And it's a very inconsistent message with 
saying that they're going to be data dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, and if in fact they're data dependent, and in fact another raise is justified because growth in the second part of the year is closer to two and a half to three percent, we could probably fit in another raise or two. Um, but it's too early to know that at this point. And the Fed really needs to sort of rein in its rhetoric um, and just focus on that data-dependent language, which is what Yellen had always done. Um, Once we get through the next quarter or two, we believe we will see continued economic strength. And if we do get a raise at that point, it'll be in the context of of, of an economy that feels a lot stronger than it does today. And I think that'll be okay, and it won't spook the markets the way it would if, if we were talking about that as an imminent event today. Right. That's where you wonder if, you know, yeah. higher rates show investors, hey, the economy is getting stronger and that means it can sustain uh, or sustain um, higher interest rates. You know, know, Carol, I know I, I value yeah. you for your economics degree and all your economic smarts, but sometimes it's good to have another liberal arts guy uh, uh, <laughs> here with us. I mean, he went to Harvard Law School, but he's also he's got a degree in philosophy. He's a liberal arts guy. He looks at the whole market. Tony Roth, always love uh, catching up with you. Chief Investment Officer for Wilmington Trust, joining us on the phone from Motown, Philly. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.